I want to tell you a little bit about my friend Paul. Paul was born in and raised in Chicago. His father was Jewish, and his mother was a non-practicing Catholic. He was an only child. His dad passed away when he was five, and his mom never remarried. Growing up, religion was like a buffet. Chose the parts you like and leave the rest. But praise God, he also had a godly aunt who shared Jesus with him every opportunity she got. After graduating college, Paul pursued career success as a first priority. Over the next six years, he lived and worked in five different cities until arriving in Memphis. By the grace of God, Paul and his 77-year-old friend Lenny were invited to Bellevue by a mutual friend of theirs in February of 2011. That February, church service changed Paul's life, Paul's life forever. It was there he and Lenny met Jesus. Neither had ever had an earthly father, but together they had found their heavenly father. That Father's Day in 2011, they professed their faith publicly and were baptized together the following week. Since then, Paul has been active at the Warrior Center in Memphis, teaching on Tuesday nights, and also teaches a life group here at Bellevue on Saturday nights, uh, and uh, that has been awesome. Uh, I'll say that, to, to sit under his teaching. Uh, he's my life group teacher, and so I, I really get to enjoy hearing from him. Uh, always brings some great biblical insight uh, to the, the lesson. And then uh, he lives in Cordova along with his two dogs, Samson and Silas. Love it. So I'll welcome Paul to the stage. Um, and I just I want to say again how much I appreciate him. He is uh, starting us off in this little mini-series we're doing, uh, kind of fight for your family of one. And then this Sunday will be fight for your family of two. Um, so the agenda here is really to see, and I gave him the task. He comes from a, a Jewish background. I wanted to learn from the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I, I, I gave him the challenge of, I would love to see how does the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 um, impact the life of a single adult, and, uh, and he has been up to the challenge with that, and, uh, and this Sunday you'll hear at 9.15 in the room next door from Hayden and Laura Simons on how uh, to fight for your family of two, the, the family of two that you would hope to have someday. Uh, we want to look forward and be prepared for when that day comes, uh, even as single adults. And so this is the beginning of this, the discussion, and then this Sunday, we'll, that will be the conclusion of the discussion, fighting for your family of one and two, okay? Our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. God's word says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. Paul, I leave it with you, man. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. It is an honor to be able to be up here tonight sharing with you. Um, it's the most nervous I've been teaching anything in a couple of years. So kind of was locked down all day, re-going over it, changing things, being like, no, that's no good. 
have to redo that. So worked out. It was late on the slides, getting them in. It was but a little past the deadline, but seemed to work out okay. Nobody yelled at me, so that was good. <laughs> um, before I get started, let me just uh, pray one more time for us and just pray over the word. Almighty Father, Heavenly King, Lord, thank you so much for today, Lord. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together, Lord, to be able to learn about you, to be able to study your word, Lord, and to be able to worship you and to glorify you. Lord, I just pray that this would be a time that your spirit would be manifest, Lord, that we would feel your holy presence, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would open my lips, that my mouth would declare your glory, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable before you, Almighty, that what I have to say today would be what you would have me say, and that it would be useful and profitable for this group, Lord, that it would help them as they walk with you to grow closer to you, King Jesus. Oh, Lord, it's in the matchless name of your Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So tonight, we are going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. So it is the last of the books of Moses. If you have a Bible, it's the fifth one that he wrote. The Hebrew word for it is Deb Harim, which means the words. That is the Hebrew title of the book, and it's basically the second telling of the law. It's not an expansion as much as a reflection and him re-going over what he talked about in Exodus and in Leviticus. He's 120 years old. He's been wandering in the desert for 40 years with the nation of Israel. He has watched the entire generation that left Egypt with him except for Joshua and Caleb die. And he has been told that he's not going to be allowed to go into the promised land. And so he's leaving his last instructions, his reflections, the things that the Lord would have him say to these people as they're about to go into the land that he's promised them. It's already theirs by faith if they will just step into it. The reason that they had to wander for 40 years to begin with is that they lacked the faith. The Lord had promised it to them, but their spies came back, and they didn't even need spies, but they sent them anyway. And the Lord came back and said, because you didn't have the faith, this generation won't go into the land. And so that generation had to die out, and we all learn by example. The children of Israel watched their parents make bad decisions. They watched them lack faith after seeing the miracles of God in Egypt, after seeing the Red Sea split, after seeing manna fall from heaven, miracle after miracle after miracle, they still didn't get it by the time they got to the land of Canaan. And so they wandered. And so Moses is reflecting and he's looking back. And as he does that, he resummarizes the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, is the most central, inside of it, is the most central core tenet of our faith. It is literally the foundation of what we look at. It is, if you go to the next slide, 
so important, so central to Judaism, that if you ever go and visit a Jewish person's home, you will see on their front door one of these things nailed. Those are the three that I have on my house. I've got one on my gate, the bottom one, and then that the big one there with the fish I got in Israel, that one is on my garage door because that's really my front door if I know you. Only strangers use the real front door. That's how I know I don't know you. You've come to my front door. If I hear the doorbell ring, that's when I hide and go, why didn't I get a text message, right? Because that's, you know, you used to be excited when the doorbell rang, and now it's like, oh, no, who's there? You know, when I was a kid, it was okay to answer the door. Now you don't, you know, hey. But the blue one is the one at my front door. And inside each and every one of those is that scroll right there. And that scroll is the Shema. It is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then there's another little section from later in Deuteronomy and part of Numbers. And it is the core tenets of the faith. And the Lord says in this section of Scripture that you should bind it to your doorposts, bind it to your gates. And they take that literally. And so you nail it up there, and it is there. And it points at an angle so that the word of the Lord is going into your home and hopefully being a blessing on your home. And it's customary to touch it and kiss it every time you walk in and out. I only have them on the outside doors because nobody in my family was Orthodox. If you go to an Orthodox household, there is one on every single door to every room inside the whole house, unless you have a toilet that has a separate door in the bathroom. That one's exempt. I don't know why, but there is actually a legal ruling on that, that that one does not require it. Um, but th that's what they are. Um, they're called mezuzahs. And the paper inside, if you're ever nailing one up, I had a friend of mine tell me one time that uh, he had somebody install it for him. And the guy came to him and said, hey, don't worry. Um, there was some funny looking, it looked like an extended warranty paperwork or whatever. And I just went ahead and I left that on the table for you. And so he had taken the scroll out and nailed it up there empty, not realizing that um, that, that was supposed to stay inside because it looked like paperwork. But, you know, that happens if you don't know. You don't say. I had another friend of mine ask me why I had an incense holder on the door to my house. And I'm like, incense holder? No, that's not, that's not an incense holder. That is a completely different thing. And so inside of that is something that uh, we are going to read. In fact, we'll read it now, and then we'll dive into the lesson. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 1. Um, now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So Moses is getting these instructions from the Lord, and he has been instructed to pass it on to the people so that they would do well, so that you and your son and your grandson, three generations down, might fear the Lord your God to keep all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, 
just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So there is this promise here that if they will follow and obey the commandments, that they will do well and that it will allow them to enter into the land if they keep the statutes. And that God will be faithful from generation to generation, from son to grandson. And now here is what is inside the doorpost. And it is, in Hebrew, it is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words which I am commanding you today, you shall have on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So that right there is the Shema. And we're looking at the Shema today to think about how we fight for our family of one, how we fight for us. What does the Shema mean for us as single adults? I'm not, I've never been married. I'm single. I hope to be married one day, as I'm sure pretty much everybody in here hopes. I'm sure that most of you want to get married and have kids and so you're in a season of life where you're trying to prepare yourself for that, just like I'm trying to prepare myself for that. And so as we prepare ourselves for what comes next, we have to be thinking about how we can be ready for that. And as we talk about fighting for a family, you know, for a lot of us, that might seem kind of far off, you know, kind of premature, you know, out of place. I mean, some of you are probably thinking, you know, well, yeah, this all sounds great, but, you know, the truth is I've got like 15 major life decisions before that even happens, and, you know, I'd really rather kind of talk about those, you know, before I even start thinking about a family. But the truth is, is that how you live your life now, how you prepare for marriage, will have an enormous impact on any future children that the Lord blesses you with. Because children are a gift from the Lord. They're a reward from him. And it's an awesome responsibility. We have a duty before God to train up children in the way that they should go so that they won't depart. And it's the role of parents and primarily fathers to teach children about Jesus, to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. The number one source of scriptural knowledge should come from the father. I grew up in a fatherless household. I didn't have the benefit of that. And there are a lot of kids in America that are growing up in fatherless households because Satan has been waging a war on the family since the beginning of time. And since the 60s, he has gained a lot of ground in America. You know, I was reading that back in the mid-60s, like I don't know, what is it, 50 years ago, 8% of kids were born out of wedlock to a single mother. By the time 20 years ago in the mid-90s, it was up to 
And today, 40% of all kids, almost half, are born to a single mom. And in some large urban areas, the rate's north of 70%. And I looked up in the poorest zip code in Memphis, over 90% of children are in a single family household. It's terrifying. Because when you grow up in a single parent household, the chances are that you're gonna be much poorer. You have one income. Usually mom's gotta struggle to go work. She's not around, she's at work just trying to put food on the table. And so who raises the kid? TV, internet, media, Satan, exposing them to all sorts of ungodly ideas, driving them in the wrong direction, exposed to just all sorts of immorality. And we see the consequence of that. You know, America today is more angry and more divided than ever before because there's no civic virtue anymore. Nobody talks about my obligation or my duty or, you know, what should I do to help my neighbor? You know, nobody talks about that anymore. Now it's, well, my rights. I have the right to this. I have the right to that. And there's nothing wrong with, I mean, I'm grateful for my rights as an American. But when we take that to a level of selfishness where it's all about me and it's not about our neighbor, then we're living in direct contradiction to the word of the Lord. You know, and just because it is legal does not mean it's profitable. You know, Paul spends a lot of time talking about, well, just because you can do a thing doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And it's about loving your neighbor. And so many of the problems that we have in our country, if we would just spend a little bit of energy extending grace to the people around us, so many of these problems would go away. If we would just go, you know, I'm going to find a way to help that person instead of being angry with them. You know, I was at Sonic the other day getting a drink. And I love the Coke Zero with the Diet Cherry and the little Maraschino cherries in it. I'm addicted to it. It's my thing. They know me on a first-name basis now at my Sonic. And um, I know most of them. And I try to be friendly, try to, you know, make sure I tip them. I'm, I'm kind to them. But I remember one of, the, one of the car hops, and she's in high school. And I could hear it in the stall next to me how the cheeseburger was wrong. I don't know, it was a double instead of a, or it was a single instead of a double, I think he was screaming at her. And he was shouting at her really loud about how could you get it wrong? How could you do this? I've been waiting for 15 minutes, on and on and on. And it really rattled her. And I thought to myself, it's a cheeseburger. Like, you're gonna be okay. And if you're just nice to her, we'll get you another one. But we're so angry. And we're so wrapped up in what's good for us that we forget about our obligation to love one another. And our constitution, our way of government, it only works if we are a moral and a virtuous people. It collapses anywhere else because it simply doesn't work if we're selfish. The more selfish a people, the more they need strong overhead, strong leadership. And that begins to create oppression that nobody wants. And we see that we're starting to have a lot in common with the way the nation of Judah looked in Isaiah. In Isaiah 
He wrote, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. And that is what our culture looks like. I can't remember the last time I turned on TV and the relationship that you see being portrayed as a marriage or, you know, that the father's portrayed positively, you know, or that you're getting served anything besides liquor. I mean, every time I turn on any show, it doesn't matter. I could be flipping through whatever. I don't think there, nobody ever has an iced tea or a Coke in their hands. I mean, it's always a whiskey or a beer or every once in a while, if it's a breakfast scene, you might see a cup of coffee, maybe, possibly, or if it's a stakeout, you know, and they're out there and they're the police, you'll see it. But otherwise, no. Other than that, you're not seeing it. And so you're just exposed to this constant, never-ending stream of what is not good. And so that's what we are facing as young adults, is how do we impact that culture? How do we prepare our hearts to have a marriage that is counter to that culture? And how do we prepare for a future marriage and build it in a way that we can raise children that are counter to that culture? Because the culture that we currently reside in is not the way that we would want to raise our children if we're reading the word of the Lord. Because the culture that we currently live in, there's a lot of dust on the Bibles. And as Andrew wrote earlier, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees which was the most important commandment, his answer was Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. He said the Shema. It's the very core of the faith. It's the very core of the Jewish faith, and so it's the very core of our faith because what we are are Jews that have recognized the Messiah. It's the only difference between Judaism and Christianity. They're still looking for the Messiah. You found him. Other than that, there's no difference. The Old Testament is your Bible. You know, I remember getting saved with Lenny, and he was a Jewish guy, 77 years old, broken down old con man. I was friends with him for like a year and a half before we started going to church. We did everything wrong together. I mean, just, and he was a lot of fun to do wrong with because he'd done all the wrong you could possibly do, and he knew the right way to do it. Like he'd learned from doing wrong, like, hey, this is not, you can't do it this way. You got to do it this way. Trust me. Then there'd be a story, like, let me tell you about this time in the 70s. And I'd be like, whoa, okay. And so we had done everything wrong together. And a mutual friend of ours invited us to come here. And he was all nervous. He's like, are they going to know that I'm Jewish? And I'm like, well, if you, stuck, if you just tuck the Star of David into your shirt... And button up, it'll be fine. Nobody's going to know. There's not like a special radar or anything that they've got in, in the church. And the last time he'd been to a church was in the 70s, and he had gotten cornered. It was, an, it was an old Italian Catholic service, and a bunch of old Italian guys cornered him and started yelling at him, Monte Cristi, which means Christ killer in Italian. And so, which is a very common experience for Jewish people. I've got half my family's Jewish. We don't walk into churches because, you know, we've, you know, I've been called, you know, I mean, you know, you killed your Messiah. You know, you guys have blood on your hands and, you know, I, I mean, just all sorts of horrible anti-Semitic things that you hear. And just the pejorativeness in the general culture that you hear towards it, it leads you to be very, very suspicious of Christians. That's why it's hard to witness to Jewish people 
because they've experienced 2,000 years of persecution by Christians, you know, and so they're just not hearing it. They're like, yeah, you just, you keep that to yourself over there. And so he was a little nervous. I was like, don't worry about it. So we went, and it was 2011, and it was the year that he was doing the Bible chronologically, which was perfect, because it was February, and he was in Exodus. And so it was Old Testament. It was safe. He was talking about the tabernacle. So Lenny wasn't running out of there. And so we were kind of curious, and we went to the bookstore, and they had the chronological Bibles in there, and Lenny was a little nervous looking at it, and I flipped through it, and I said, don't worry, we're good till September. Everything in here until then is fine. We don't have to worry until mid-September. There's nothing in there that's any Harrison. He's like, okay, good. I go, you can still go to the synagogue after reading it. And so we started reading the Bible together every day. And as we did that, we found Jesus. And we found him in the Old Testament. Because that was the scriptures. It's just the way the apostles were explaining to people from the scriptures. And when they say that they were explaining from the scriptures how Jesus was the Messiah, they're talking about the Old Testament. That was the only testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. It was hundreds, you know, it was a hundred years away from being, you know, codified. It didn't exist. What they were talking about was the prophets. What they were talking about was the Shema. And so as we look to unravel the Shema and what it teaches us about how we're to lead our lives and what that means for how we prepare ourselves, that what I really want you to think about as you're looking, because you're all probably looking to get married. I mean, there might be one or two in you here and here that's not yet. But for the rest of you, I would imagine that, you know, you're here because you want to date. And as you think about what you want in a partner, the question that you have to ask yourself is, are you the one that the one you are looking for is looking for? Are you the one that the one you're looking for is looking for? Is your heart right? Are you holy? Are you walking with the Lord? Because if you're unequally yoked, it won't work. And if you're not walking with the Lord, then you're not ready. And, you know, if you're like, oh, I want to marry a really godly wife, but all you want to do is go drink and party and play video games, you know, it's going to be tough for you to find the wife that you're looking for. You know, and if all you want to do is shop at Target and, you know, get massages and spend money, you know, and your and your dream is to get, you know, a husband with an American Express card with no spending limit and stay at home, then, you know, you're probably not in the right spot either. You know, I've seen a marriage implode on that. Never saw anybody that could send. I had a friend of mine is now divorced, and I remember going over there one night for dinner, and he was, and it was like no food in the house at all. And he was complaining about how she would spend $400 a week at Whole Foods. And I'm like, there's no way. There's no way that you're spending $400 a week at Whole Foods and this is what you got. I mean, I know they're a ripoff, but I mean, come on. You, you got like a bare cupboard here. I mean, that's still a decent amount of food. I mean, you're not eating bison filet. So are your hearts right? So living out the Shema, let's, uh, if you can move over to the, Living out the Shema is about pursuing holiness. Holiness is how you build a godly marriage and raise up godly children. 
It's how you develop yourself into somebody that can raise mighty arrows, children that are ready to be sent into the world that will impact the world for the Lord. And so as we start looking at the Shema, as we break it down, we'll see that the very first thing that he says is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Starts with the most basic thing that there is. It's a declaration, an announcement that God is God and that he is one. Put away your idols, get rid of your Buddhas, throw away the golden calf. I am the Lord and I am one. He's declaring his nature. And his nature is plain. In Romans, Paul wrote that from what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In Romans 1.19, he has made it evident. In the Psalms, David wrote in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Only the fool would say in his heart that there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That's only the fool would say that there is no God. It's interesting that the Bible spends almost no time on atheism. You kind of get two verses. That's it. Psalm 43, or Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. You get a repeat of the same thing. Other than that, there's really no discussion of atheism because it's self-evident that there is a God. You know, if an atheist comes up to me and says, well, prove to me that there's a God, my answer is, well, prove to me that there isn't. Because all creation declares that there's a God. His, his appearance is self-evident. You know, if you want to deny the obvious, that's fine. But I'm not going to sit there and have a debate about what is self-evident. If you're that wicked, if you're that set against the Lord, can't even start. And so the first thing that Moses is declaring is that hero Israel, Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. He makes the announcement. Then he moves into abiding with God. And so he goes, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. This is the part that, as single adults, we have to get right more than anything else. Once we get this right, then we're ready for the next step in the Shema. We're ready for the next steps in our lives. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, your heart. You know, Jesus wrote in John 15, it's, I am the vine, you are the branches. It is maybe the deepest well in all of scripture. You can't exhaust it. You can sit there and read John 15 for the rest of your life and you'll never fully comprehend the riches of Jesus' grace and his mercy and his love. And he writes, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the question is, is do you love God with every ounce of your being? Are you absolutely, totally dependent on him? Is he your only option? 
Or is he still plan B? Are you still walking in your own strength thinking that you can do it, which I did for years? You know, I spent my 20s chasing money, chasing career, chasing success, doing everything wrong. And I remember one morning waking up and I was doing well, just gotten a new job, a better job. And I remember I was shaving, I was getting ready to go to work. And as I was shaving, I looked in the mirror and I thought to myself, how is it possible that I could have made so many bad decisions in a row? I was a smart guy. Everybody, I really, oh yeah, you're a smart guy. But yet somehow I had managed to make so many bad decisions in a row that I found myself in a place where I didn't enjoy what I was doing. My life was empty. I was barely talking to my mother. You know, I was just basically wanting to run away from everything in my childhood for no reason whatsoever. And I was just set steadfast on sin. Just like the Proverbs that say, all those who hate me love death. And as I looked up and I was sitting there, I thought to myself, how is it that I could have put myself in this position? I hadn't broken any laws. I wasn't under any indictments or anything, but I was just really dissatisfied with my life. And the answer was, is because my heart was totally wrong. I was pursuing the world. And in the Proverbs, it says, just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. I remember I was talking to a guy once that was buying a car from me, and he was wealthy. He had his own private jet, and he had just gotten back from the Masters. And the Masters in Augusta is like billionaire and millionaire row. They all fly in to go. And he was in his Learjet, and he landed. And all he could do when he landed, he was telling me, was he was looking at these Gulf Streams and at these bigger Learjets, and how he felt like he wasn't doing well in life because he just had a, a small little short-range private jet. And, you know, it couldn't go, and how he had to do better. And I thought to myself, there is nothing that you can get in life, material-wise, that will ever be enough if that's why you assess your worth. If you assign your worth based on your material possessions, it will never be enough because it's inherently empty. Your worth is in the fact that you were created by God, that you were created by God and that you were designed to glorify him and enjoy his presence forever. It's the Westminster Catechism. It's the most basic answer to what is man's purpose. You were created to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever. And the more that you deviate from that, the more unhappy you will be because that means you're not loving the Lord. That's our purpose. That's why we were created. And as we love God and we're connected to him, as we abide in him, our heart changes. Our thoughts change. Our desires change. You know, do you love him more than you love your own life? Are there areas in your life that are off limits to God? You know, do you love God but not financially? You're like, oh yeah, I come to church, I'll volunteer, all that, but no, he's not getting any of my money. No, absolutely not. That's off limits. I need that. I'm already stretched tight enough as it is. You hear that all the time. You're like, no, I don't, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. 10%? No. That's craziness. But yet somehow you can afford new computer, new electronics. It's interesting that in America, we spend more on electronics in a single year 
than the GDPs, the entire gross domestic product of all but 25 countries on the face of the earth. Just on electronics. Where are our values? What do we really need? What are our priorities? Because a lot of times the problem isn't that we don't have enough resources from God. It's just that we're not satisfied with it. Like the Israelites in the desert, well, we want something besides manna. We're not happy with the resource that we've been provided. We want something different. But God is the provider, and he says he's going to give you what you need. But a lot of times that's not what we want. But what we want isn't good for us. What we want is going to be destructive for us. You know, there's been many times in my life where I thought, all I really want is a winning lottery ticket. Wouldn't it be great to win the Powerball? Win $300 million or some crazy, you know, whatever, just pick a number. Some, some stupid amount of money that you could never spend in your entire life. Well, I guess you could, but be hard. You'd have to work at it. And you look at people that win the lottery, and most of the time they wind up worse off than before. A lot of them wind up bankrupt, divorced, unhappy, because all money does is just make you more of what you already are. It's a magnifier of who you are right now. If you were to land $10 million in your bank account, it's going to make you more of who you are right now. If you're struggling with alcohol, you're going to be struggling with expensive alcohol. That's what's going to happen. You know, you're going to drink premium whiskey or wine. If you're struggling with drugs, you're going to buy more expensive drugs. You know, if you're a shopper, you know, you're going to have your own personal target assistance, but that won't last and you'll wind up at Nordstrom's, you know, where you can do some real shopping. That's what's going to happen, where they come and they model the stuff for you. And they come, that's, and you might even go to Neiman Marcus or Needless Markup. This is going to make you more of who you are. But if you're godly and somebody parks $10 million in your bank account and you're generous, then maybe all you're going to be thinking about is how can I bless somebody with this? How can I serve the Lord with this? How can I be a steward with this? And so a lot of times the Lord won't give you what you want because he knows that it's going to hurt you. It's going to damage you because your heart isn't right and ready for it. You're not there yet. Maybe that's why you're not married. It's because you're not there yet. And he knows that in your heart, you're not ready to be the person that you need to be for the one that you want to marry. Do you love him more than your own life? Or do you still have things that are off limits? Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then last, he talks about loving God with all of your might. You know, God blesses all of us with unique strengths, with unique talents. Some of us are really physically strong. You know, might be able to deadlift 500 pounds. Good for you. It's great. Fantastic. Maybe you'll help a preacher move one day. You know, he'll need some help and you'll be there. You'll be like, I gotcha. You know, you can serve the Lord with your strength. Or maybe you're going to protect the flock. You know, you're going to run security at a church because you're a strong guy and you can. And so you're using your strength to serve the Lord. But, you know, maybe you're somebody who's blessed with really keen emotional insights. And so maybe that means that you turn yourself into a counselor and you help people that are struggling in their faith, struggling in their marriages, struggling in their, their, their walk with the Lord. Maybe you're really smart and you say, I want to start a blog. I want to do videos. I want to teach. I want to write. I want to be able to help make clear the word of the Lord for those around me. Maybe you are blessed financially. Are you blessing 
other people? Are you using your finances to the fullest capacity? If you're blessed with them, are you using all of your might to serve the Lord? Every ounce of your strength. That's what Jesus says is the most important commandment. It's not just about loving him, kind of. It's about being totally sold out and abandoned to him. Recklessly so. Like, you should err on the side of overdoing it. Like, you know, I might have given too much. That's good. That is a better conversation to have when you go to heaven than I didn't give enough. You know? If you're going to be broke, let it be because you gave too much to somebody that was hungry rather than you needed a new OLED TV. You know? I walk past those things at Costco every week. I look at the picture on and I go, that is pretty. And I slap myself back to reality and I go, nothing's even streaming in that resolution. What am I going to do with it? My TV's not broken. But we have so much wealth in America that, you know, we just replace appliances because we don't like the way they look. No, they got to match. That's my favorite. They ha we have to have matching appliances. So let me get this straight. We're going to throw away a perfectly good refrigerator and oven because it doesn't match the new dishwasher. Well, they have to match. How are we ever going to sell the house if they don't match? I've heard these conversations. And I'm like, so you're just going to flush $3,000 down the toilet because you want them all to look identical. Absolutely. Hey, did you really need it? Was it broken? Or did you just want it? I mean, maybe the Lord wanted you to have it. That's cool. If you prayed on it and you're like, yeah, the Lord said I need a new matching a set of appliances, great. It's fantastic. But usually it's, we're misallocating. But when we get ourselves completely together, completely focused, then we can start to live out the aspiration of God. You shall teach these commandments diligently to your children. God desires that no one should perish. God desires that all would come to repentance. And so he's describing here in the last part of the Shema, what does the day in the life of an observant Israelite look like? What does it look like to be an observant religious person? You know, Peter says that you are a royal priesthood, a nation set apart. What does it look like to be part of a royal priesthood? He says, and these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, you shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And so as we look at that, you can go to the next one. There are, you know, I read a little bit of Talmud, which is the Jewish law, the stuff that Jesus was so angry about. You know, when every time you see him angry at a Pharisee, it's because of the oral law, which is the Talmud. And so the Shema has a guidebook about this thick, just for the Shema, hundreds of pages. Like, when you rise up, well, what time does that mean? When is rising up too late? You know, like, when have you missed it? And so the ruling is, is that you got to get it done by the time that is no later than when your wife first speaks to you or when the baby cries that he's hungry in the nursery. If it's later than that, you've gone too far. You've got to get it done. 
you know? When does it have to be done at night when you lie down? Well, ideally, as soon as you see the first stars in the skies, you can get it done and that way you're safe. You can wait until you lie down, but don't fall asleep because then you might miss it. And so they have all these rules around it and they take it really literally. If you ever run into an Orthodox Jewish person, they'll have what's called a phylactery. It's this little box that they put on their head right here and they have a wrap around their arm and they take literally that you shall bind it as frontals and you shall wrap it around your arm. And so they want, you know, they, they take this to this literal extreme. But is that really what God is talking about here? And, you know, I don't think so. What God is talking about is what does your home look like? You know, your sons are going to come in time and they're going to ask you, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? That's the amazing thing about kids is that they're curious. My favorite question when I was a little kid was why. I drove my mom nuts. I, must, I, I, I hear stories about I'd ask why a hundred times a day. And thankfully, my mom, my aunt, the nanny, they were really patient. They would be patient with me. But that why is a gift from the Lord. Your children trust you, and they're curious. And that's the Lord opening up the door for you to be able to share Jesus with them, for you be able to talk to them about the mighty things that the Lord has done. It's a miracle that they trust the way that they do. And that's what Jesus says when he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to have that trusting childlike faith. You have to be willing to accept. And so if your hearts are right and you know the Lord, then your home life, your words, your actions, your possessions should demonstrate that you're living for Jesus. You know, when I, if I walk into your house, do I see scripture verses on the walls or are there whiskey boards, whiskey and Ouija boards and Buddha statues? You know, what have you got in your house for decorations? What kind of artwork? What kind of photos? What kind of music are you streaming? What kind of books are on your shelf? What does your home say about you? What kind of testimony does it have? Is there love there? You know, I hope to be a father one day, and God willing, I hope I'm the kind of father that delights in his children, that's excited to spend time with them, that creates a home that's so loving that there would be no place that your children would rather be. That the happiest place that they could be is at home, talking to you. And that way, as you sit around your table and you discuss the things and they see Jesus everywhere, they'll ask you questions. And you'll be able to talk to them about the Lord. Because kids, you might tell them something, but they're a lot better at mimicking what you do than they are what you say. And so if you want them to love Jesus, your life has to show that you love Jesus. If you want your kids to grow up and be warriors for Christ, then you need to demonstrate that yourself. See, the society that we live in is struggling, but society is transformed one family at a time. Your greatest mission field one day will be your children. When you have children, they become the most important exercise of your faith. Your first and your highest calling is to educate them in the Word of God. The Word of God teaches us to recognize truth. 
When we faithfully take in God's word, it gives us the ability to discern and love the truth and to discipline to live by it. We have to take in the word of the Lord. We have to pray. If we don't do those things, if we don't have those disciplines, we're done before we start. We're already on the wrong track. But when you do those things, when you do them, then it says your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. That's the kind of house I hope to have one day. It's full of joy and love and peace and a happy family. How do we get there? We love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might.